0: Well, hello there and welcome back to Molecule to Market. I hope you're having a really wonderful summer. Apologies if our episodes have been a bit spottier over the summer, but getting a hold of guests has been pretty challenging whilst the sunshine has been shining across Europe, the US and Asia. But fear not, we have a fantastic episode today uh, where you'll go inside the outsourcing space with the brilliant Marcelo Begal, who is CEO of Ventis Therapeutics. Every so often, I like to get a guest on the podcast that represents the drug development side, the side at which most of you will be dealing with on a daily basis or looking to target ultimately to help them as a vendor on their development pathway. And I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing uh, Marcelo today, who shared his fantastic story from his kind of background as a neurologist to taking a drug to market when he became part of Teva to now being the CEO of Ventus Therapeutics. What I particularly liked about Marcelo is but fundamentally his attitude towards patients and keeping the problem that the drug development company is looking to solve at the absolute heart of the work that he and his colleagues do. Listen out for his incredible story of the business that he joined that uh, within 14 months of a fundraise sold to Teva for $825 million. Not only that, everyone left except for him, and as the chief medical officer, he helped take that product to market. Intrigued by that, I asked him what that felt like and what it's really like to actually take something from the clinic to market. So he shares the real life kind of insight into what that is actually like. Moving on to his time as CEO of his current business, Venice Therapeutics. Marcelo talks about small molecules and almost the sense that we've only really been scratching the surface with small molecules. We've just not had the technology to allow us to see how they can be used again. And his business has developed a platform technology that allows us to do that. They've raised the best part of, of $300 million recently, and they have three compounds on their way to clinic. He talks really openly about the challenges that they've had in terms of what they retain in-house and what they have decided to outsource and some of the challenges they've had during COVID and due to the conflict in Europe. Again, this is real life kind of insight into what it's like being the CEO of a drug development company that is you know, cash raised, but burning through that cash and needing to solve problems on the fly. Again, really, really fascinating. And the back end of the interview is we talk about the current capital market and where the future lies for his business. Genuinely a brilliant episode in one which I learned lots from and I hope you do too. For background, Marcelo is a venture partner as well as the CEO of Ventus Therapeutics, a Versand-backed company utilising rational, structure-based drug design to discover small molecule medicines for high-value and elusive targets. He brings more than 13 years of pharma experience with a focus on urology, spanning R&D, medical and scientific affairs. He has extensive experience in leading large and small scientific groups, including multiple leadership roles in industry, including head of R&D and chief scientific officer at Teva, as well as chief medical officer at Teva and Purdue. Prior to his work in the pharma sector, Marcelo was faculty member of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Department of Neurology, as well as the director of research at New England Centre for Headache. He's authored no fewer than 330 papers in peer-reviewed journals, edited six books in neurology, and is the recipient of multiple awards and recognitions in the field. If that is not enough, he holds a medical doctorate degree from the College of Medicine at the University of Sao Paulo, Brazil, where he obtained a Master's in Science and a PhD in Neurosciences. He completed his postdoctoral research at the New England Centre for Headache. I know I read that and felt a bit dumb too. This is one heck of a guest. All right, final couple of things. Just a quick thank you to my team, Gemma, Roxana, and Tony, who helped me bring this podcast to your ears. If there are any guests that you would like us to interview, please get in touch via our website and please nominate a guest. We've had some fantastic nominations recently and we've been able to outreach to those people and invite them on the show. As always, if you get a moment, please give us a nice rating on the App Store of choice. Five stars would be my recommendation. And last but not least, please share today's episode with a colleague and feel free to connect to Marcelo on LinkedIn. Beyond that, please enjoy today's episode. Hi Marcelo, welcome to the show. Hi Roman, thanks for having me in the show. Pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all mine, Marcelo. I've been, uh, I've been very excited to interview you after our initial conversation and, and to bring your story to our listener. Marcelo, you've got a really interesting background that has led you to where you are today give our listener a bit of the backstory of of how you've got to to where you are. And I know it's quite an interesting story, so I may interject a few points (laughs) and ask you some more questions, but I'd love for you to just indulge and give us the kind of backstory about you.
1: Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, I am a neurologist with PhD in neurosciences. I was born in Brazil and I came to the United States in 2001 as a headache physician specialised in headache and pain. And to do my postdoctoral year, and I after the postdoctoral year, I joined at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine as a faculty. And I was especially interested in understanding why some diseases seem to have a mismatch between the insult and the consequences of the insult. For example, some people have minor traumas in their head and they develop post-traumatic headaches that, that is substantially disproportional to the magnitude of the trauma. Some people have uh, developed episodic migraines, migraines once in a while, and for no apparent reason, uh, of two years after the onset of their diseases, they have a, a headache that never disappears. Some people use minor doses of opioid and get hooked in the opioids. Right, which is disproportional to the quantity of opioids that they used. So I became very interested in understanding what uh, I call the mechanisms of disease progression. And as part of my academic world, uh, work, we found one peptide that was interestingly very involved in the progression of pain in people with migraine. This peptide was, is, is called CGRP calcitonin gene-related peptide. And it's not a peptide that actually causes migraine. If I inject this peptide in somebody that doesn't have migraine, nothing happens. But if I inject the peptide in somebody that has the biology of migraine, they will have very severe headaches and very frequent headaches. As a coincidence, Merck decided to develop small molecule medications against CGRP. So I joined Merck to lead this development. So I transitioned from academia and patient care to pharmaceutical development. I worked at Merck for five years, and interestingly enough, every single molecule that we developed at Merck worked, but caused toxicity to the liver. So Merck lost patients, lost faith, and decided not to pursue CGRP antagonists uh, uh, anymore. But the opportunity came to me to leave Merck and join a pharmaceutical company startup called labris biological that was going to pursue the same target with uh, an antibody and the thing is antibodies are not degraded in the liver <clears throat> so i thought that actually this would be a very good opportunity to see true and now to, to bring this home and summarize how this ends is the company was acquired by teva uh, and I decided to stay at TAVA, first as chief medical officer, and then as head of research and development. And eventually, we, the, the, the the molecule got approved, uh, and it's in the market now, as several others. And what I learned in the process, Roman, is that to be, to, to be a great drug developer, to be a good drug developer, I don't know if I am good or not, but to be a good drug developer, several attributes are required and, and they combine. Obviously, technical knowledge in how to develop drug, technical expertise in how to conduct clinical trials, but also the understanding of what is the problem that you're trying to solve, who are the people that you're trying to help, and how you're gonna make the medication not only available, but affordable so they can use. So that's actually what brought me to where I am at Ventus, uh, back to developing a small molecule for very difficult, very important diseases and try to do it in the most rational way.
0: Brilliant. And I'm going to come on to Ventus Therapeutics in your job today. I want to just rewind back to the time at which you sold the business to Teva in, 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 I think you took the unusual step that many do, which actually you, you stayed with the, the acquirer for, for for a certain amount of time. So I wanted to understand why you decided to do that. And also, what was it like getting a drug approval? I mean, lots of people work in drug development for years and years and years and never see a drug approval. Things fall down in clinical trials. So I'm genuinely intrigued to know how that felt. What was the energy like? What was the excitement like? I, in my mind, it was more than just a champagne popping moment. It's a a real euphoric uh, kind of moment, but that's my assumption. I might be completely wrong, but I would love you to take us back to that time and and, and talk us through what it was like.
1: Very good. So the company that was acquired by Teva, I joined the company pretty much at the same time uh, as the CEO. So the CEO and the CMO, I was the CMO, we joined at the same time. And it was a remarkable story of success because we raised it $27 million, and 14 months later, we sold the company for 825 million uh, in only 14 months. And the, and the reason, I, I strongly believe now, and competitors to us were Lily, Novartis, and Angem. So this was relatively crowded with titans uh, a, as competitors. And the reason I believe we were so successful is because our clinical trial was very different. And it was very different in the regard that actually I really tried to solve the problem that the patients and the physicians had. For example, in any clinical trial of migraine, of severe migraine, the most severe patients are excluded because the most severe patients are unlikely to respond. They already failed medications. We included them. Uh, In most migraine trials, patients that fail more than X medications in the past are excluded. We included them. Patients that use opioids are excluded. We included them. And what was the rationale? I had a biological rationale. Obviously, I didn't take a gamble. I I had good reasons to believe that actually I would succeed. But most important is these are the patients that would benefit from the drug that we were creating. Not the the simple patient. The simple patient has options already. Many approved medications. So the fundamental thing is we are developing a a medication that's high-end we need to work in high-end patients. And by high-end, I mean desperate. So when the company was acquired by Teva, we were a small company, we were only 12. El- the other 11 left, right? Meaning job is done, Teva is gonna do, the, Teva has expertise to do. And indeed Teva had, but what Teva did not have, Teva had many clinical developers, pharmacologists, regulatory people, but they didn't have a headache specialist. And I decided to stay at TEVA as the expert in the, as the voice of the patient that I wanted in the trial. And um, I love what I do. Obviously, then when you bring passion to, to the work, then you start developing other things for Huntington's disease, which we got approved for, many approved medications for asthma. But I, uh, my, my drive was, meaning th- th- this is a privilege. I get paid to do what I love and and if i do it well my medication is going to be approved and the patients will benefit so now getting to your moment the most touching moment is not when you are approved to me the most touching moment is when for this particular medication is when you open the clinical trial for enrollment like your phase three And as I said, our phase three now accepted patients that were always rejected, and you start getting letters from the patients. And the letters are incredibly touching. Like, for example, I remember one letter that said, a woman, it's past midnight, I find the drive to finally leave my bed and go to take a shower. And I have been crying for 20 minutes thinking, is this it? I would love to join the trial. Right? Uh, a gentleman for the UK, a young man like twenty-five, wrote a very depressing letter, and said uh, basically at the end, it said something like, "I'm sorry if this sounds uh, gloomy, but living with a prison on the top of your neck does make you desperate." So these were the moments where basically I, I really start getting kind of um, in this incredible emotional zone. And then, once you finish phase three, when, once we finish phase three, I knew we were going to get approved. So the approval date was just more of a mark for me. And the second touching moment was when you start getting sh- the, 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 the the stories shared of people that in, in improved a lot, of people that actually actually one of my best friends, he was the a very important headache specialist. His son suffered a trauma uh, uh, playing lacrosse, uh, uh, and and his son developed chronic migraine. He had migraines and his migraines become in, uh, uh, impossible to treat. And he had tried everything. And um, he started using this medication compassionately prior to approval. And then he continued. And he's now a doctor. He's a physician. right? So, uh, and, and actually following the steps of his father, he's training to be a neurologist. So those were the moments to me. Well, obviously, not all patients responded and some patients failed. But these were the moments that were very, very uh, passionate to me, very, very touching to me.
0: Thanks for sharing that, and that that that's really brings it to life. I think for a lot of our listeners of how you're wired and also your attitude towards you know what success looks like in this context. And what's really interesting is you've said a couple of times, you know, focusing on solving the problem and actually keeping the patient at the center of that problem. Do you? do you think your medical background in your, I suppose, patient centric approach was what made that all different that you were bringing that approach to the, the first business, but also to the Teva team when everyone else left? Like in my mind, that seems to be the, I don't call it the special formula because I I, you know, I understand lots of, there's lots of moving parts of bringing a drug to market, but that approach and that attitude that you had sounds like it was central to why you were able to have such success. Is that a fair observation? Um, it is it is fair, but let me just
1: say something. Uh, uh, first, meaning talking about the Teva times, the Teva team was incredibly talented. So this was meaning the program succeeded, not because I was particularly special, but I did add an emotional glue to the to 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 the drive that the team had already but the beautiful thing at tav is that actually uh, people were willing to listen because i'm going to tell you something as i have a medical background but many hundreds of people have doing drug development and the fundamental thing is you are never going to meet a drug developer that doesn't tell you that they are not patient-centric everybody will tell you but but the fundamental question is When it comes to the point to make the hard decisions, which is, are you willing to take a higher risk to bring patients that would otherwise be excluded? Are we willing to try a new endpoint that's way more patient friendly? Are you willing to try to do the unknown because you don't want to go to the beaten path because the beaten path doesn't reflect the necessities of this time? That's when you see that you are patient friendly or not. So I think that actually my, my, my secret sauce, and again, uh, which is a small secret sauce. The thing that actually I think I add to the, the perspective is context so that the true experts understand what they're they are trying to solve. But I think it's not so much that I, I carry the, the the medical background and therefore I can provide patients' perspective, is that actually I have the discipline to stay the course when the decisions happen. Medical background, is my medical background is not better than anybody else. It's just that actually the, the discipline to at some point make the decisions that matter and then convince the investors who are good people and they wanna do what is right for the patient. And, but they wanna be reassured that you're not gambling and then convincing your troops who are extraordinary developers, but they don't want to, to, to be driven to a dead end. I think that's, that's, the, that's the, the secret sauce.
0: No, that's great. And you you clearly <laughs> demonstrate a huge amount of humility, given your success in, in qualifications. But that's a great segue into Ventus Therapeutics and, and what you're doing today. So from your time when you left Teva, did you go straight into this, you know, founding this business and helping getting it off the ground? What was, what was that journey like? And, you know, and please tell our listener a little bit about the business as well.
1: Yeah, no, interestingly enough, when I left Teva, I had a a one-year pit stop at Purdue Pharma. (laughs) You know, you probably know Purdue very well from the opioid business and all the the, 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 the attention that it got and the the, the role in the opioid epidemic. And I I was invited by Purdue to basically try to put together a non-opioid business. And we did tremendous things, right? So, so I, I, I worked at Purdue, not on, on the opioid, but basically we developed two cancer medications that are uh, advancing, one medication for sleep disorders, one medication for ADHD. And we developed a formulation of naloxone, which is the antidote for opioid overdoses, that the intent was to give it for free for all uh, first responders. So I... It, I, I joined Purdue because, actually, uh, in a company in distress like Purdue, I felt a tremendous ability to do what was right. Uh, but obviously, the, the the situation was incredibly uh, st- stressful, and it took me no time to understand that actually, n- it didn't matter how much ideology, this would be the company wouldn't survive. So, so uh, I left Purdue to join Ventus. And I did this in the 1st of May of 2019. And the idea at Ventus uh, is is an idea that I profoundly, still have profoundly attachment to this. And the idea was uh, small molecules, right? Meaning chemicals that go after proteins are now unloved. I'm talking about 2019, right? So they are unloved. And the reason they are unloved is because the feeling is that they cannot be used to address the next level of disorders that uh, we need to treat. Many many forms of cancer, many forms of genetic diseases, neurodegeneration, and the reason is not because uh, any problem with small molecules. Actually, small molecules are very predictable and very accepted by patients. Patients don't have any problem taking a tablet or taking a medication, or taking a vitamin, or taking a hypertension medication. But try to convince them to take an RNA vaccine as we saw in COVID. Oh, it was too fast. Oh, I'm afraid it's going to change my DNA. All wrong, right? All very wrong. But that's the perception. So the fundamental thing is, small molecules are beloved. Small molecules are predictable. Small molecules are easy to manufacture. And as we can see, based on generic medications, they can help to address the affordability problem that we have. They are much cheaper to manufacture than large molecules, antibodies, RNAs and CRISPRs. But the problem is there was a sense that any protein that matter at that point, right, for Alzheimer's, for everything like that, didn't show a pocket for a small molecule to dock. A small molecule must, f- proteins must have a pocket where the small molecule dock so you can use this small molecule to, 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 to do it. So if you think about protein being like a bowling ball, a small molecule is a ping pong ball. So unless the ping pong ball finds its way to the key, to the large molecule, it does not unassemble the large molecule. An antibody on, uh, on, on, uh, differently is not the size of a ping pong ball or of a bowling ball. It's the, sound, it's the size of a car. Right? So for, for a large molecule, does, as long as it binds, it's going to kill the thing. A small molecule must find its. But, but the large molecules like antibodies don't penetrate the brain. Super expensive to manufacture. They cost $70,000, $80,000, $100,000 a year. Right? So the fundamental thing is, in my opinion, we were doing an undesirable trade. And CRISPR therapies, RNA therapies, ProTax, they are untested. So the undesirable trade was we're walking away from a modality that we know and love to modalities that are untested because the modality that we love seems to be exhausted. But in reality, most proteins do have pockets. And it's just that we don't see. And we don't see for a variety of reasons. But, and I'm only going to mention two. First, because the proteins are moving, And as they move, they assume very different conformations. Think about a Pac-Man that is opening the mouth and closing the mouth and twisting and turning and getting upside down. These are the proteins, right? So proteins assume multiple conformations. Sometimes, for example, one of the targets that we work has 42 conformations. And the pocket sometimes is visible in some conformations, but not in the others. And if you have to think, think about the protein that assumes 42 conformations, it go 1, 2, 3, 4, 41, 42, 1, 2, 3, 4. It keeps doing, right? It keeps doing the cycle. If only one pocket has conformation and you bind to this pocket, you stop the cycle. When it gets to 17, 18 doesn't happen, 19 doesn't happen, 1 doesn't happen, 17 doesn't happen, right? So you, so you only need to find a pocket in one conformation, but, te- but the technology available requires to average, computers average the conformations. And by averaging, if you average 10 and, and 1, or 10 and 0, the average is 5, but 5 doesn't exist. You only have 10 and 0, right? So we develop a, 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 a the, the, the technology, it's a physics-driven technology called the order rank clustering, it's a horrible name, that basically maps every single confirmation that a protein has. So point number one, We have extraordinary protein capabilities, we can see every, uh, then we we model the protein in in computers and we see as many conformations that they form and they see if there is a pocket. And second, the other reason people don't see a pocket is because the proteins are not only dancing, they are dancing in water. The cell is water, right? And water we occupy the pocket. Water occupies the pocket. And sometimes it shows you that the pocket is flat. But when water is occupying this pocket, water is very dynamic. is donating bonds, receiving bonds, behaving as grease. And if you figure out the energy of the water in the pocket, you can come to the labs and say, I want to develop small molecules that have exactly this energy and exactly this format. And you just got yourself something. That, because water goes there, your molecule will go there. You have the same the same attributes. So Adventus now bringing this to a conclusion. Sorry for the long response. The, the idea here is was, I hate the idea that we are trading modalities. And if the protein doesn't have a pocket, so it be. We go for large molecules. If this is a genetic disease that has an unwanted repetition in the DNA, so it be. We go to CRISPR. But the, the thing, so it's not a, a fight against other modalities. It's a fight against the undesirable trade so we developed this so we, we we put together the company I brought a phenomenal chief scientific officer who has 20 years of experience and um, and start working the, the mechanics of this we put together we hired all the, the pieces like the physics driven uh, guru and the computational chemist and 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 so far and um, we develop a platform called resolve And resolve is solve, solve from solvation, We solve So basically what this platform does is for targets that are biologically validated and that we have the structure and we have all the protein biologists in-house, we will define all the conformations and the solvation analysis so we can identify how the water in the pocket is. We call this the hydrocophore. And with the hydrocophore, it's our blueprint we go and identify chemical matter that has the same blueprint. And, and as a consequence, develop, we developed very, very a very good pipeline. We're gonna have three compounds getting into clinic stage next year. It's remarkable. And we raised a $290 million. We currently have 85 people working in the
0: company. You're listening to Molecule
1: to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services
0: space. Congratulations on the platform, on the team that you have assembled. And here, 290, 290 million dollars that you've raised as well, which is phenomenal. And and three clinics bound for, sorry, three compounds bound for the clinic, which is a phenomenal success and i wanted to ask a bit more around i suppose before today's interview we had a conversation a week ago and i was i was fascinated to hear your experience of of, i suppose dealing with vendor partners and outsourcing which a lot of our listeners are you know contract research you know technology companies and manufacturing companies analytical companies uh, you know vendors that are supporting drug development companies like yourself. And you, you taught me some interesting anecdotes of how difficult that has been over the last few years due to COVID and obviously what's happening in, in the war in Ukraine. Can you share some of that story with our listener of, I suppose just what I want to do is give our listener real insight into some of the challenges that you've faced as a drug developer, but also I suppose what support and and how, and how these companies could, could better prepare for supporting uh, drug development companies like yourself?
1: Uh, there, there you go. Thank you very much for the question. The, um, I, I believe that actually the ideal way of um, of developing drugs in the model of the company that we are creating, right, which is a company that we are not, we, we never developed to be like uh, an acquisition in a year, an acquisition in 14 months. This is a company that I strongly believe is going to endure and it's going to become important so the 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 mechanism here is um the secret sauce is in house i mean that's that that's the new knowledge that you generated that is the crucial activities that you do and then you partner with very good cro's to that to use their secret sauce their ability to synthesize chemical matter their ability to generate knockout of Biological systems or models, the ability to give you tissue to test your medication, like human tissue, right? So then, you partner with uh, so the, the the differential secret sauce should be in house, in my opinion, and then the the volume and the magnitude and the quality should take advantage of the secret sauce of vendors that are very good. So Ventus, in this regard, has one advantage of many other companies, which was from the very early days we had animal capabilities in house pharmacology dmpk chemistry bioassays um, and when when if things got really really bad obviously we would do things internally like chemical synthesis it, it's going to take more longer than doing in a vendor and it's going to take cost us more than doing in a vendor but we could do it but this said the last three years have been among the most uh, difficult and challenging in drug development for a variety of reasons. Uh, And twice, we seriously face it, a threat to our business. The first one was um, once we, for our pipeline development, as I told you, our platform generates a blueprint of what a pocket should be. And, and, And this is pockets that others cannot see. But once you have this blueprint, you go to you do something called virtual in our model. We do a virtual screening. So it's a we go to computer-based modeling you, that vendors have, and they have virtual libraries of chemical matter, and we used these virtual libraries to find what we call virtual hits. So look for this blueprint that I told you, and model and see if we found chemical matter that should bind the pocket. But it, this is all in computers, right? So now let's say the computer told you wow well, there is 80 we found 80 hits 80 hits to to do it you need to then go to a vendor that will synthesize these hits for you because they have now physical libraries you don't if i have to synthesize at vendors i have to synthesize from ground zero these guys have monomeric libraries of chemical matter so they synthesize for you and once they send to you, you start doing your improvement, and then you work with other vendors to do optimization. Change this part, change that part, let's do this, let's do that, volume-driven basis. So starting the first challenge that we got was when COVID hit China. And our vendor for the second part, which, uh, which basically help us to optimize chemical matter that's real, true, and that we already have, is in China, is in Wuxi. Where the epidemic started like close to Wuhan, right so in the very early days of the the the, 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 uh, the epidemic our vendor closed and this is not a vendor to ventus this is a vendor that service pretty much i mean half of the pharmaceutical companies out there so everybody started doing the same thing oh my where where do i go now so At Ventus, we did something that actually I felt very prudent. since Because of my training, I have a lot of training in epidemiology. I could clearly see that this was going to spread. So basically, our guidance was get two vendors in very different geographies. So we moved to India and to Canada. India, Canada. And this was prudent because, if you remember, the epidemic came from China to India. So now the India vendor closed, but the China vendor reopened. So now I had Canada, China. And then it came to America. So now now the the, the Canada vendor closed. So during the entire epidemic of COVID, in the early days, we basically had like a, wow, meaning we are paralyzed. We were quick quick to pivot. But I think that actually we ended for the entire epidemic duplicating the, the efforts just so that we would have always one vendor available at a higher cost. But it was prudent because it didn't disrupt the business. But then the second thing came to us. And this was particular to vendor. Now, if you get back to our story, I told you that we do the virtual screening with the blueprint, we get 80 hits. And then we get so this is before optimization, I don't even know if these hits are real. So I now need to synthesize them and see if they are real. And uh, pinnacle company in the world, the best, by far the best company that does this type of services, is in Ukraine. It's called Enamine. And uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, meaning they, they, they closed. And obviously, it was, it was a horrible moment for all of us because you, you, felt, you feel awful to complaining because of all the atrocities that you see in the war. And uh, so you, f- you, 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 you feel small about thinking about this kind of needs. But on the other hand, your business just closed. You, not your business, but your platform that is kind of solving the problem. And um, so that, that was very scary. So how, how this concluded? We decided to build our own library right, uh, uh, of chemical matter, so not to be uh, ever in this situation again. But that, that would have like a, a one-year delay, right? But we started doing nonetheless. But Anamine, the company in Ukraine, reopened fairly quickly and reached it to their customers saying, please don't abandon us because it became now a matter of resistance to, to stay um, open. And we decided to stay with them. So we decided to duplicate again. We stay with them and we open our new library. And for the foreseeable future, we, we do both, right? And eventually if the... Uh, when the, the the things improve in Ukraine then we are going to feel less uh, uh we are not going to feel bad than moving to our own business but I think at this point we we're we working both on on anamine and with our own internal capacity but it was horrible
0: uh, it, and it is fascinating to hear obviously the obvious cost of business for you guys increasing because you're effectively duplicating efforts and you know to 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 deal with the instability of, of what you're dealing with is you is your platform and your product continue to scale in in the clinic and you know you then start to presumably use more vendors more CROs and potentially manufacturing partners what how, how are you going to take that prudent are you going to retain that prudent approach which is what you've I suppose what you've learned from the last few years or would you go are you expecting to go back to a slightly more I suppose a less prudent approach where you're kind of you know you'll use you know one cro one manufacturer or, or whatever i suspect you might not have decided that, that that's not a decision you've taken today just i suppose interesting to know how the last three years has impacted the way you're gonna operate moving forward
1: the last the last three years have impacted me profoundly um i'm gonna specifically answer your question but starting from a a bigger perspective uh first meaning as 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 a human being to me it was horrendous to see the human toll, the denial of the science, the 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 inability that we had as beings, as human beings, to just unite and doing like freaking simple things. Nobody was asking us to give an arm. Nobody was asking us to get into an airplane and fight a war that we believe is unfair. We we're just being asked to use masks and take vaccines. And um and um and uh, instead, we decided to go after people of the caliber of Fauci, of people of the caliber of the greatest scientists in the world, and, they, and then trash them to re- resigning. So I think that actually the, 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 the... Why do I mention you that? Because, uh, meaning as, as I said in the beginning of this interview, the philosophy that I bring to drug development is a, is a reflection of how I see the world. We we everybody comes and say I'm, I'm my company is going to do a better world. Well, we start now. Treat your employees well. Treat your vendors with dignity. Do the, the do the right things, right? So so I think that actually I, uh, that that was a profoundly uh, a profound moment to me. However, uh, so then there, there are two other things. The the solution will be s- solved to me by the volume, right? So uh, the, the, our platform is scaling. Yes, we have. Um, we are we we hired 35 new people in a few months and we are improving the way we see the hydrocophore which is the blueprint we are improving the, the software uh, uh, development we are incorporating machine learning pieces in a very selective way not in the jargonic way that people uh, say but what this translates is this is going to give us volume so this year in addition to the pipeline we are prosecuting 15 targets, one five, Next year is 50. So, with this level of, not entirely for me, some of these will be, some of these targets will show that they don't have pockets. Some of these targets show that they have pockets, but they are not addressable by small molecules. The idea of my company is to make things rational. Some of them will generate chemical matter. Part of this is going to stay at Ventus. Part of this we're going to partner with pharma and, and, and we're going to do good things. But because of the volume, we're going to have to use more vendors, period. And, uh, and, um, and which means we are going to create duplication or triplication, not in the regard that actually is duplication for single assets, but just duplication of vendors because we have so many assets. But even if this was not the, the, the case, even if I was not scaling activities as I am, I would still duplicate. And the reason being, the world has changed Right. The world has changed We have global warming, we have the weather changing, we have new viruses coming, smallpox, monkey monkeypox and things like that. Nobody's, no, nothing prevents COVID to remutate and become more aggressive again. Right. So, so it, it's a world, it's a dynamic world. And to me, the cost of duplicating is a small cost relative to the benefit of not disrupting your business. So obviously I'm not going to duplicate to the same extent that I did through Covid, but I'm gonna keep the so let's say vendor one is doing eighty percent, vendor two is doing thirty percent, but for my most important assets, they're both doing. Mm-hmm. right? So if the worst comes, I, uh, uh, meaning we we we're we are cushioned.
0: That is really fascinating, I have to say um for 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 our listener to get that insight from someone like you said that's developing. And scaling, and what your attitude is towards that, and that you know ultimately, as you said, the cost is relatively small compared to the issues it causes you for disrupting, and in in how that impacts your business and in your team. And I wondered, we've got another kind of five minutes or so left, and this has been such a fascinating conversation, and and, and something that I hope our listener gets a huge amount of value from. Given what's happening in the, I suppose, the capital markets at the minute, you obviously mentioned that you guys have raised, it, you know, the best part of three hundred million dollars. How does how does the the capital markets piece and you know the I suppose the less favorable investment? environment impact someone like you and some in your business is that something that keeps you up at night is that something you don't necessarily worry about just to kind of I suppose what I'm trying to do is getting get in the mind of a drug developer and what, what keeps you up and what worries you because that would be something that's fascinating to to all of our listeners
1: yeah the capital market is brutal and um and the interesting thing but 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 again uh Roman I think that actually, we use very little our powers of observation. The, 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 the capital market, by late ne- late last year, was insane. The biotech—I'm specifically talking about the biotech market—companies that had that were years from the clinic were IPOing. Every company was worth billions of dollars. We felt very little. If you remember, meaning may, maybe you don't because you're younger than me, but in the dot. Calm crisis, the crash. If you basically, if you basically said, "I have an e-platform," people would give you money without, yeah, doing, yeah, do, yeah, without doing due diligence. <laughs> to you. Obviously, it was not like this in the biotech, meaning people were doing due diligences. But it was so easy to raise capital, and, every, and if you said, "I have machine learning and artificial intelligence," meaning money would rain on you and i I, I use artificial intelligence a lot in my my i'm not against it and i use machine learning but i remember on record giving an interview at the time and saying people are 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 investing lots of money on companies just because they say that they have artificial intelligence but what they have is very artificial and very little intelligent and um and the fundamental thing is that the signs were on the wall the writing was on the wall so what we did is Against all odds, we resisted the temptation to IPO. And this temptation was real to us. And investors wanted everybody's IPO. Companies that are don't have half of what you have are IPO. And I said, it's unsustainable. So we raised money instead prior to the crash in the private market. So now I have $200 million in the bank, right? So I am in no rush. But what we did, however, is uh, so, and why did I want to do this? Because a great company requires stability. People need to know that they have jobs. People need to know that the programs that are good will continue. People need to know that the programs that are not going to are not good are going to be discontinued. But when the so, but when the XBI crashed, what I did, even though I had this amount of money, I redid my cash burn to basically conserve substantially more cash and focus on. Um, on the platform, on the really get this thing flying, 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 and on the lead pipeline assets tree. So, if I was planning to bring five to the clinic, I'm pl- I'm bringing out three. The other two will come, right? But why do why 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 do I do this? Because. My company has generated enormous value. Three programs in the clinic in, in next year is remarkable. Fifty targets being pursued by the platform is remarkable. And all of this is because the team trusts that we make the right decisions. And, and they don't wake up and check the market. They don't see how stocks are going and if they should sell options or they shouldn't sell options. So now finalizing your questions for the interest of time. The market out there is brutal. I don't see this getting better. I mean, you saw yesterday down 5%. Uh, I don't see it getting better. It's going to fluctuate. And then there is people are talking about interest. People are talking about cutting oil to Europe from Russia. People are talking a bunch of things. And I have the good fortune of not having to think about this. I will focus on developing the medications and the value of the company. And when the market improves, we finance again.
0: That's uh, Yeah, it's, it's really good to get your perspective on that from the inside and that kind of very prudent approach again to you know conserving cash and and thinking about the long term stability of the business. I think is is super smart. Final question, you know, where where does you mentioned obviously that you you resisted the temptation to IPO. Where does where does a business like yours go? You know, do you and you know, I appreciate you can't tell us everything, but is there a goal that you have in mind which is you know you want to take one of your Price to market, or you know, you mentioned partnerships where you can license and, and that type of thing. Do you do you have a specific goal in mind of, of where this business can go? Or it sounds like the, the world is your oyster at the minute, given the potential impact you can make on patient healthcare. So I suppose I, I'm interested to know where you are in terms of the patient impact versus, I suppose, the the obvious financial impact you could make in a shorter of space of time, which again, I'm not meaning to put you on the spot. It's just, just given your story, given how you have clearly a patient centric approach and you clearly care about your team and your business, you've got good morals. It's clear for everyone to see, but also you're in a very lucrative area. And in, in, I'm sure lots of people come knocking <laughs> every day with a business like yours. Yeah. So what is, you don't have to give us an answer as opposed to just how would how you deal with that dilemma? Because I think that must be tricky for, a, for someone like a CEO like yourself.
1: This is a very good question, um, uh, Roman. It's a fair, fair question, fair game. Um, this, it, it doesn't, I will continue to, to build a good. Com- so, so let's, there's the patient centric component of your question, there is the question of making comments. So basically, they all come together. I think that actually the, 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 the elements for this company to be really remarkable are there. I would, love to, I would love to build a Vertex or a Regeneron. Regeneron started with their ability to make good antibodies. I have the ability to find small molecules in common. So we, the, from, remember, Disney World is started with a mice, right? It, you always start with from humble beginning, as long as you have the good science. I think I have. That said, I need to finance my company as the next CEO. So obviously, when we start our our, uh, next year, we have three phase ones starting. I'm funded to do that. As we start approaching for phase two, I have to IPO. But meanwhile, we're going to have partnerships because the thing here is, how does patient centricity feel in the world of partnerships? By understanding that sometimes you have an asset that is great for a disease that you do not have the muscles to pursue. I don't have the muscles to pursue NASH. I don't have the muscles to pursue atherosclerosis. These are multi-year trials. I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be uh, against partnering a program that has incredible potential value for these indications to, for, with pharma, uh, somebody that has better chance to develop it and fund my company by doing so. It's patient-centric, Is science-driven, Is financially savvy. Why I save to me, let's say, a first-in-class compound like C-Gas, uh, one of our compounds, is a first-in-class, everybody tried, everybody failed. The lead, the lead indications are doable by a company like ours. There are dermatomyositis, mm-hmm. there are cutaneous lupus, there, there are um, uh, skin diseases in patients with Down syndrome, like right? uh, uh, hydrin- hydrotonitis. I can do that on my own. It's first-in-class, it's pe- and I is a company on itself. So the, the, the fundamental thing to me is everybody that goes and say, my goal is to have to be acquired, will not be acquired. Because to be acquired, you have to build a great company. And if you build a great company, you will have your partnerships, you are going to IPO. And at some point, the value is so evident that that's going to be a great decision. Do I want to keep doing? Do I want to sell? Right. So that's how I see it. To me, it's all part of the same thing, which is just, just have fun develop yeah. good drugs find the right patients and, and create value
0: well what a what a fantastic guest you've been marcelo honestly i think i could ask you questions and talk to you all day it <laughs> helps that you have that fantastic uh, brazilian accent sitting underneath it all as well and we didn't <laughs> even get the chance to talk about soccer and in, in football today as well but it goes to that marcelo but you know we really appreciate your time and sharing your experience, your background, but also some of the challenges that you face as a drug development business. Um, and we we certainly wish you all the best with the incredible work that, that you're doing. You could impact so many patients globally with the work that you guys do. And uh, congratulations on your success. And thank you so much for being a guest on, on Molecule to Market. Th-
1: thank, thank you so very much. It was one of the most pleasant conversations that I had um, uh, as a drug developer. Um, I wish... England a lot of luck in the World Cup but not and I hope you I I wish you have the second place but but thank you very much for inviting me it's a pleasure and I'm available for future conversations thank you
0: hi again thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcast or wherever you'd like to listen get in touch with us on our website moleculetomarketpod.com and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. And we will see you again next week.
1: You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.